Good everyone. Great to see you all. Let's pray before we look at God's Word together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us so clearly in your Word. So we pray tonight you'll help us to set aside the things that might be distracting us and concentrate on understanding your Word. But more than that, we pray uh, that you will help us to respond to it in faith and repentance as we always should. In Jesus' name, Amen. One of my uh, favourite things is uh, when people from outside our church uh, tell me that they're struck by the way they see people in the church caring for one another and loving one another and looking out for one another. And you'd be amazed how many times I hear this, people who uh, are connected in some sort of fringe way with our church, whether it's you know being a parent of one of the kids' ministries or one of the youth ministries or something like that, or people who perhaps come along for a short time and they're struck by the way they see the Christians in the church loving one another. Uh, when you're in it, you sometimes can't see it. When you're, you're in it, you can't see how special it is. Uh, but even just the little things that people see, of people sharing one another's lives, the fact that people give one another a phone call when they don't see them for a while, the way people often cook meals for one another in our morning congregations, this wonderful thing where any time someone has a, has a baby... Uh, people cook meals for them and, and look after them. Uh, it's just wonderful. Most people in our world do not have that. Uh, most people in our world, other than from immediate family and maybe a bit of extended family, just don't have that. Our world is not a loving place. That's the sad reality. So even a tiny bit of love, even a tiny bit of what we call fellowship in the church strikes people. It stands out to people. So I love it when people see that and comment on it and you'd be amazed how often it happens. Of course, I then try and say, hey, you can be a part of that. You can come uh, and be a part of that as well. The reason people are like that is because they know the love of Jesus and so you can come and meet Jesus too and you can experience the same thing. But those are the good stories. Every once in a while though, there are times when people are not as positive about church and the sad comments when people, once in a while, you're talking to someone and they've been hurt by a Christian or they've had a bad experience of church, either here or at another church, uh, and that is now stopping them hearing about Jesus. And often the issue, real or perceived, because sometimes the criticism isn't fair, but often the issue is hypocrisy. They've been put off by the way a Christian didn't practice what they preached. A Christian talked about the love of Jesus but showed no love to them in their life or something like that. Now, at that point, of course, we want to gently say, I'm sorry, and Christians will let you down sometimes because we are sinners too, and if you really want to look, look to Jesus because he's the true not hypocrite, if you like. Uh, but even so, sometimes people's views are hard to change, and because of that experience, they're not open to hearing about Jesus. But that is the reality of the church. The, the church family can be a wonderful witness to our world and it can be a terrible witness to our world. And that is the case now, but it's not a new thing. It's been the case since right back in the beginning. And we're seeing it in today's passage in Acts. The first half of our passage, I've called the beauty of the church at its best. It's this incredible positive picture. But the second half is the sadness of Christians at our worst. But let's start with the positive. Uh, we're at chapter 4, verse 32. Uh, now, in many ways, this passage goes hand in hand with the little passage at the end of chapter 2. Uh, so you really do need your Bible open because we didn't read that. So put up your hand if you didn't get a Bible before and uh, someone at the back will get you one. But flick back to chapter 2, verse 41. So you might remember when we looked at the story of Pentecost, 
we focused on the coming of the Holy Spirit, but there was this little description of the church. We won't read it all, just verses 41 and 42. It says, So those who accepted his message were baptised, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. I think that verse there, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. It is a wonderful picture of what happens when people get the gospel. It's just a wonderful picture of what happens when people become Christians. Firstly, we become a part of this thing called the fellowship of believers. We become a part, these become, these people become our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then what are the things they together devoted themselves to? Look there, the apostles' teaching. For us, that's studying the Scriptures. They had the apostles there to teach them in person. We have the New Testament, of course. They were devoted, if you look at the end there, to the prayers, praying for one another, praying for the world together. But also, they were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to meeting together. They shared their lives. They, They shared meals. They opened their homes to one another. Now, passages like this one are not meant to be a list of rules for church. Uh, It's not meant to be, this is exactly what the church must look like. But what they are is a picture of people gripped by the gospel, what people who've come to know Jesus are like. Uh, It won't look exactly the same for us. We're in a very different cultural situation. They were in a a world in Jerusalem where everyone met together and went to the temple every morning, every afternoon, and work fitted in uh, uh, around religious life, if you like. Ours is a different situation. We can't meet daily like, well, we could, we could try it, but but our world is different. But even so, the call is, the model is, we can be devoted to the fellowship. We can make meeting with our brothers and sisters in Christ and sharing our lives the centre of our week rather than fitting it in around other things. We can open our homes to one another. I know I'm like a broken record on this, uh, but it's because I believe it's actually the sin of modern evangelical Christians is to undervalue the gift of fellowship, to undervalue the gift of one another in Christ, the gift of the church. And when I talk about the church, I'm not talking about the denomination. I'm talking about these people around us who are our brothers and sisters. People who are gripped by the gospel are devoted to the fellowship. But now turn back to chapter 4, come to the, the passage we're looking at tonight. Chapter 4, because this next picture of the early church focuses on two very special parts of that devotion. And what it is, is unity and generosity. Look from verse 32. It says, Now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. I think it's just a great little phrase there. They were of one heart and one mind. Just wonderful. They were united in their knowledge and their love of Jesus. Uh, they didn't let other things divide them. I actually thought about just pausing at that point and just preaching a sermon on that phrase and, and, and talking about how we can show our unity of heart and mind, our unity of faith. But I won't because the passage focuses especially on how that then showed itself in generosity. So look there again. It says, No one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. Then look down at verse 34, it says, For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, 
This was then distributed for each person's basic needs. Now at first read, and some people go in this direction, it sounds like a form of communism. It, it sounds like no one owned anything, everything got pooled, it, it all just got spread out and the apostles decided who got what. You know, so it's basically you handed over your checkbook, your, we don't have one of those anymore, your bank account, your pin number to the apostles and they said, we'll, we'll tell you where the money goes. It clearly wasn't that because if you read on a few chapters in Acts, people still owned homes for the church to meet in. Uh, and more than that, in the next part that we read, the, the hard part, Peter says to Ananias, you didn't have to sell your house. No one said you had to sell your house. So it wasn't like the early church was a hippie commune from the 70s. What it was, though, was a community of radical love and generosity. The key line, I think, is there in verse 32. Look at it. No one said that any of his possessions was his own. See, the world says that is your money. You've worked for it. The world says, that's your house, so pull up the drawbridge, it's your castle. That, the world says, that's your car for you to use. The Christian appreciates this is all a gift of God and we hang lightly to the things of this world. Where is our treasure? Is it here on earth? Jesus says our treasure should be in heaven. And so we use these things that God has given us for this earth, for God's service and especially for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our grip should be very loose on the things of this world. Our idea of ownership, at least our own ownership, should be very loose. All that I have is actually for the benefit of God and for the benefit of his people. Now, at this very early moment, that generosity was focused on meeting each person's physical needs. That was the focus at this particular point. As the church grew, as we get the rest of the New Testament, uh, and as they became more aware of the mission that Jesus had put before his church, that generosity extended to other areas, to supporting mission, to supporting the the, the gospel going out, to supporting the local church, to, to supporting other churches in need. You see that as the New Testament develops. But all of it with that same spirit of generosity. The point is, people gripped by the gospel are radically generous. Funny, I've heard people teach this passage many, many times and they immediately jump to explaining how we're not called to sell our house and give away the money. In fact, I did it tonight. I said, you know, it's not communism and, you know, and all that sort of thing. But I wonder, is that because we're so scared that we might be as full-on as these early Christians? Are we scared by their radical... We have to say, yeah, be generous, but not that generous because that's a bit too radical for us. Yes, this is not a command, but we're called to have that same spirit of generosity. We need to ask, how do I use my house? Is it your castle or is it open to your brothers and sisters uh, to, to experience your hospitality, to benefit from what you have? In our giving, how do I work out how to be generous? There's an old joke, the last part of a Christian to be converted is his hip pocket. But it's not a joke because money is actually the clearest sign of the reality of our heart. It's interesting, if you just read one of the Gospels through and you'll be amazed how nearly every time Jesus wants to talk about the state of the heart, he uses the example of money or possessions. Nearly every time. It's amazing how much Jesus talks about money. And that's because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's because no person can worship both God and money. So we need to ask, do I cling to my money? Am I only generous with what's left over, with with my spare change, or does my love for Jesus drive me to be radically generous?
We read that, that Old Testament reading from Malachi there and it talked about how they were cheating God. These are the Old Testament people. They were cheating God because they weren't giving their tithe, their, their 10%. They were holding it back from God. But these first Christians who were all Jews, it's amazing how they were so unlike that. They weren't saying, hang on, the Old Testament told me I had to tithe, I'll give you 10%. They were saying, how can I be more generous? And they weren't saying, oh, look, I'm not under the law anymore. Uh, Maybe I'll give 5%, maybe I'll give 2%, maybe I'll give 1%. That's what a Pharisee does, not someone who knows the love of Jesus. They said, we have come to know Jesus. He has died for my sins. He is the risen Lord. All I own is a gift of God. Let me use it. Let me use it for his glory. It's hard for me to talk on this topic because I am paid through the generosity of church members. Uh, So that makes me in a slightly conflicted position. Uh, But as your pastor, I have to. I want to say to you tonight, can I encourage you to consider your heart in this matter? Don't let God's word, don't let this example of the early church pass you by unmoved. Christians are radically generous. If you want help in being faithful with your money and possessions, if you've never thought about giving, by the way, even if you are a student and you think, oh, I'd love to give, but I don't have any income... We must be generous when we have little or we will not be generous when we have much. That is just a reality of life. If you want to think it through, that's why we have this little Bible study, Guidelines for Giving. We give it out our welcome lunch and welcome afternoon tea. Can I encourage you, if you've never thought through how do I work out how to be generous, uh, it's not just like the church bank account details. It's a Bible study about what the Bible says uh, about generosity and how you can be generous. Christians are radically generous. It's very hard to get examples of generosity because godly people almost by definition don't declare what they're giving from the rooftops. Godly people almost by definition will not tell you this is how much I give. If I can tell you a story, I was inc- I'm, I'm now incredibly thankful, I don't think I was at the time, but when I first finished uni and got a job and I, I got a reasonably good job and uh, I just hadn't really thought about how my circumstances changed. I did find I could go to a lot more movies because I had this income coming in and that was, that was a change. I went out two or three nights a week when I, before I had to be careful, you know. Uh, but then a friend, an older friend, now you can question whether he should have been watching what I put in the plate, but an older friend saw me just sort of pulling out my wallet when the plate went past at church and throwing a 20 or a 50 in the plate. And he actually had the courage to come and say to me, Phil, you've got a job now, you're not a student anymore, have you actually thought about what it looks like to be generous on a decent income? That took a lot of courage and as I say, you can question whether he should have seen me, what I put in the plate and we don't put it in the plate around here. But actually it was incredibly helpful for me because it opened my eyes to the fact I've got to work out how to be generous in my situation. Here in this passage though, we're given a wonderful specific example of generosity in Barnabas. Look at verse 36. Says Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth, the one that the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas actually becomes a major figure in the book of Acts. We're going to meet him more later on as we go on. He was a missionary alongside Paul. But what you see here is from the beginning, he was a man worth following because he was gripped by the gospel and that showed itself in radical generosity. He is someone with that spirit of generosity that comes from knowing Jesus. Well, there's the church at its best. 
the passage there in chapter 4. Sometimes people read these descriptions, like that one in chapter 2 and this one here, uh, and they have this romantic idea of the early church, and then they get disillusioned with with the modern church, and they say, why can't the church today be like that? Uh, I decided as I was preparing this sermon, I'm going to say to any person who ever says that to me, well, if you want to sell your house and put the money in the box at the back... That is up to you, welcome, and uh, I'd love you to do that. It's funny how we're very quick to, to look to apply God's Word to other people before we look to apply it to ourselves. But besides that, Acts actually shows us the early church had its issues just like the modern church. And from the very beginning, especially, sadly, it had the issue of hypocrisy. So come with me, Christians at their worst in chapter 5. So after these wonderful opening chapters, with the church growing, with thousands of people added to the numbers almost overnight, people being saved every day, these wonderful pictures, this story of Ananias and Sapphira just totally stands out, doesn't it? It's quite jarring. If you were actually reading Acts from the beginning as as one story, and you get to this point, it's like, whoa, what happened there? And I think it's intentionally put after the wonderful example of Barnabas to stand out even more. It's like you've got this incredible moment where Barnabas sells everything, gives everything away, and then you've got Ananias and Sapphira. It's actually exactly the same as in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, when when Israel go into the promised land, everything is working, they're going in, they're taking the land that God has given them, and then you have a guy, Achan, who who steals what things God had said to destroy out of greed, and he's judged by God. And it's almost like this is a parallel moment. So what happens? Well, it tells us there in verse 1. Look with me. This man and his wife, they're in on it together. They sold their field, but they kept a portion of the money for themselves. They came and they laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet, just like Barnabas, but they kept a bit on the side. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, Peter makes the point in verse 4. Look down there. He says, wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? The problem wasn't that they kept some for themselves, and the problem seems to have been they lied about it. Look from verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the field? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. The problem was Ananias had made a commitment to God to give it all, It seems he'd made a commitment in front of his brothers and sisters in Christ to give it all. And he didn't just renege on that commitment, he lied about it. He was a hypocrite. He wanted the kudos. I think what happened was he he saw Barnabas, he got a special nickname from the apostles. They called him the son of encouragement. I want a nickname from the... Well, he got a nickname in the end, but not a good one. He wanted the credit. He wanted people to say, look at him, isn't he generous, when actually he wasn't. So he was lying to them and he was lying to God. And so God strikes Ananias down. And that's what happened here. God judged him. And to prove the point of their lying and hypocrisy, we're told about his wife who comes in three hours later. We don't know where she was. She was out and about. She comes in. Peter asked her, is this what you received for the field that you sold? Now, at that point, she has a chance to tell the truth. She has a chance to to correct the record. Actually, no, Peter, we we changed our mind. We decided we needed 10%, 20%, 30%, whatever it was, and we've given this amount, but she doesn't. She doubles down. She says, yep, too right. Aren't we great? We gave you all the money. And so she dies immediately, just like her husband. 
It's actually a shocking moment, isn't it? It's actually quite confronting. It's a shocking moment. Lots of people struggle with this. Some people, I read one commentator and it was like he couldn't handle the fact that God did this and so he blamed Peter. He said, oh, it was Peter's work in doing this, not the work of God. No, this is God. Peter's standing there and they, he's thinking, what do I do with these guys? They've lied to man and to God and God judges them. It's a shocking moment. It's a direct act of God, but we struggle with it. This is why we struggle with it, because we don't really believe, we don't really grasp the seriousness of our sin. That's why we struggle with it. You see, we don't really think, what does Romans 6.23 say? The wages of sin is death. You see, we don't really believe that all sin is an affront to God and all sin is worthy of his judgment. So the actual question to ask here is not, why did God do this to Ananias and Sapphira? The actual question to ask is, why is God so merciful to me? Why is God so merciful to all the hypocrites who've come after Ananias and Sapphira, including, truth be told, me at times, and if I'm truthful, you at times? You see, let's think about it. Why does God do this at this point when he doesn't do it for the next 2,000 years on the whole? Why does God act so decisively against sin at this point? in the growth of his church? Well, there's a lot of reasons. There's a couple I'm going to point out. You might have more. The first is, it seems from the very beginning, God wanted his people to understand the gravity of sin. From the very beginning, it was like, right from this starting point of the church, I want you to understand the gravity of sin and especially the seriousness of hypocrisy. We are saved by grace, not by works. We're saved by the death of Jesus that that pays for our sin, but we are saved to live for God. And this is here as a warning to us to not tolerate sin in our lives, especially not to be hypocrites who puff ourselves up and pretend that we're righteous when actually our hearts are hard. It's interesting, in these wonderful descriptions of the early church in Acts that we've looked at, Both times, amidst all the praising and joy and generosity and all of that, there's this little word that just seems out of place, that that jumps out as as you read it, I think. And and it's a funny thing, because we don't think of it as a good thing. But don't go back to chapter 2 now, but you can read it again later on. But amidst all the talk of praising God and sharing, it says, fear came over everyone. And it's talking about within the church of God. And the same thing happens after this incident. Look at verse 11. It says, then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. See, joy and praise are marks of the Christian. Joy and praise are marks of the church. How could they not be if we know the wonder of God's love for us in Christ? But healthy fear of the Lord is also a mark of the Christian and the godly church. God is loving and merciful. God is gracious and kind. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But God is not to be trifled with. God is not to be mocked. God is not to be taken for granted. That's why we confess our sin to God rather than hide it. We do it together when we meet together, but we also do it ourselves in our prayers. I hope you do. I hope you you confess your sin to God. God wants to forgive us. He knows your sin already. He's all seeing. He's all knowing. Why would we hide our sin from him? Beware the sin of hypocrisy. 
I'm not talking here about the, the daily struggle with sin we all have, where, where we struggle and sometimes fail and we confess it to God and seek his forgiveness. No, I'm talking about the sin of hypocrisy. Beware if you are putting on a show of godliness. Beware if you are putting on a show when the truth of your heart is far from the show. God hates the hypocrisy of the person who acts like they are all righteous, who puts on a show of generosity but actually is full of greed. God hates the hypocrisy of the person who acts like a hero when they're around their Christian brothers and sisters on a Sunday but at home is cold and hard-hearted. And I don't think it's a coincidence that hypocrisy and money often go together in the Bible. Because as I said before, how we use our money is perhaps the clearest snapshot of actually what's going on in our heart. Now, remember, if you are in danger of being that hypocrite, the answer is not to run away from God. If you've been struggling and think, do you know what, actually, I'm, I'm living a double life. I'm, I'm being a hypocrite. The answer is not to run away from God. God knows the reality. He already knows. You can't run away. Remember Jonah? He got on the boat and tried to go in the other direction. How did that work out for him? The answer is to turn back to Jesus because God's grace is sufficient even for our hypocrisy. Can I implore you tonight? If you have hidden sin in your life, confess it to God. Ask for his help. Deal with it. You can hide all sorts of things from me. You, you can hide things even from those who are closest to you. You cannot hide it from God. And that is what Ananias and Sapphira forgot. So this story is here at this point to show us that, the seriousness of sin. But related to that, it's here, I think, to show us what God wants for us together, what he desires for his church, which is holiness. The church is useless if we are not holy. Have you guys all got up to uh, the part in the Sermon on the Mount in your gospel teams where Jesus talks about how we're meant to be salt and how we're meant to be light? And what does he say about a salt that loses its saltiness? It's worthless. It's good for nothing. You may as well throw it away. I hope you've seen that in those studies. Jesus calls on us to be distinct. He calls on us to be like a light, like a, a city on a hill shining in the darkness. And it is our holiness, it's our righteousness that's meant to stand out in our world. If we are going to be effective in reaching our world for Christ, our holiness matters. This is why both Jesus and Paul in the New Testament both teach about the importance of what we call church discipline. You see, the New Testament is clear. We have to care about sin. And sometimes if we love one another, we need to love one another enough to point it out in each other's lives, to challenge each other, to rebuke each other. Always out of love, always with grace, always aware of the potential log in our own eye. That idea of church discipline is a really hard topic, isn't it? Uh, if you want to think some more about it, I did a seminar for Moore College a couple of months ago uh, recently on that topic, and I'm sure you can find it online. Uh, but God was showing right from the start of the church here in this story, sin is serious. Don't just trifle with it. Don't mess with it. It needs to be dealt with. But as we close, I want to come back to the positive picture we started with. What happens when people come to know Jesus? What happens when people are gripped by the gospel? Well, we become devoted to the fellowship. 
And it gives us a unity of spirit, a unity of heart, a unity of mind, and a spirit of generosity that is a wonderful thing to see. And that is what I pray for. That is what I pray that people outside our church will see when they look in at us. I pray that people would say of us what they say of this church, where it says, Now the large group of those who believe were of one heart and mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that's what people were to say of us? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible generosity of our Lord Jesus, who laid down his life for our salvation. And we pray that we would be a people of showing that generosity. Father, we pray that we would be a people devoted to the fellowship and that we would see that all that we have is to be used for your glory. But Father, also help us not to fall into that sin of hypocrisy. Father, help us to be people who confess our sin to you rather than trying to hide it. Help us to be people who then turn to the Lord Jesus and find that wonderful forgiveness that comes through trusting in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.